welcome to the first episode of the SCCS podcast. I am your host, Richard Lobianco. I am very excited to welcome today two University of Edinburgh scientists from the School of Engineering. Dr. Mathieu Lucio, Reader in Clean Energy with Carbon Capture and Storage, and Dr. Camilla Thompson, Chancellor's Fellow in Energy. Camilla, Mathieu, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. First, I would like to get behind the science. Uh, Camilla, if I can start by asking you, can you tell us a bit more about your personal and academic background and how you got to be Chancellor's Fellow in Energy? Uh, well, so I started off studying electrical and mechanical engineering uh, and then went to work in industry, actually as an electrical engineer in the building services sector. So designing electrical parts of buildings, large buildings. And then I decided I wanted to work more in renewable energy and so returned to Edinburgh to study for a PhD. I was really interested in critically analyzing whether or not renewable energy is actually doing what it's supposed to do and actually reducing carbon emissions. And that got me into aspects of environmental impact analysis and life cycle assessment. I was at the time mostly focused on wind and wave, but then since kind of moving into getting involved in the newest project, I think my expertise is, is in that environmental assessment aspect of it all and bringing that expertise in, hopefully. And Mathieu, how about you? What's your background? How did you get to be reader in clean energy? Yes, I studied engineering in France. And then uh, my first job was also in the building services industry. I was looking at placing basically uh, heating oil boilers in various, various buildings with either geothermal energy, uh, most of the time gas boilers and uh, heat pumps. And I realized that part of my job that I found the most significant was looking at CO2 emission reductions. And also, you know, I started questioning that, okay, if you're going to replace oil with gas, uh, you're reducing CO2 emissions, but you're not, uh, you're not eliminating them. So that's uh, how I got interested in carbon capture and storage. Basically, uh, this was in 2005. So there's, at the time, there's just been a special report on carbon capture and storage by the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. I basically applied to do a PhD in the UK, in London, find a, um, an academic that was working on the topic, so that's Professor John Gibbons, and I um, did my PhD with John, and, and then when I graduated from uh, Imperial College in London, I um, joined the University of Edinburgh. Uh, at the time, the uh, Long Gannett CCS project was the world's flagship CCS project, so I thought, well, if I moved to the local university, uh, that would be a good move. And turned out to be a good move, but unfortunately, the Long Gannett project was cancelled uh, a year later. But I basically uh, stayed in Edinburgh, and then I, um, yeah, I've been I've been working on carbon capture and storage for uh, 16 years now. Uh, initially, on um, how to make new power stations ready for CCS. So uh, 15 years ago, there's a large program of uh, new coal in the UK, and um, uh, there was planned for about 10 gigawatts of coal, and only a quarter of a gigawatt was going to have CCS. So it was really important that we made all this new coal capacity uh, ready for CCS. And um, yeah, one thing led to another. And uh, yeah, 11 years after joining the US of I'm still, I'm still around, working on you know a lot of various things related to CCS. Camilla, you are a big supporter of women in STEM, and you sit as chair of the Molly Ferguson Initiative. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Uh, yeah, so um, this has been really set up, and I should probably credit the, the head of the school, it, it, it was his his desire to do something that started off this or created the seed of an idea, which has taken a few years to get into a position we're officially launching later this month, I think. It's taken a few years to get to this point, and 
essentially what it is is to try and bring together the women in the School of Engineering and our uh, allies, if you like to use that term, so people who think that um, gender should be more representative within engineering and would like to help uh, support that. So it's really for everyone in the school of every gender, but particularly with that aim of increasing the sense of community and the visibility um, of women as the underrepresented majority gender, although we're trying to be very sensitive and not exclude the the other genders, the minority genders as well. And yeah, our hope is to just make make it feel more inclusive. We're very aware that there are actually in, in, in some of our disciplines, there will be students who who are hardly ever come across a senior uh, female engineer um, in their training just by chance because of the courses that they happen to do. So it's things that make them see that it's it's actually not particularly strange to be a woman in engineering. It's just that sometimes that's the way <laughs> things fall. There are quite a few of us knocking around of all shapes, sizes, genders, colors, um, that engineering is more about what you're interested in and what you're interested in doing as a career rather than anything else, really. That sounds like a great initiative. How can people find out more? We do have a website. It's not very populated at the moment. We're trying to make sure that it's um, possible to search from from things like Google because um, that's one of the, we're still kind of learning our way through with this, but there's a, a website on the university. We do have an email address if anyone wants to just get in touch with us directly. So there's a committee who are involved with organizing activities and we have uh, an email address, which I'm just double checking what it is. So that's MF Initiative. So at the ed.ac.uk extension, the university extension. And we're also, yeah, our launch event is is running initially primarily for people within the School of Engineering and our alumni. But this will be running, I'm, I'm now trying to find the formal date. I believe it's the 17th of November. So it is actually next month. And we'll be running award ceremonies for women and allies within the school. And we'll be really just doing more to showcase the variety of work that our female engineers do. Uh, the variety of work that our female alumni do also give people tips and help in supporting having more women in engineering. I think a slightly unusual thing about this newest project that Matthew and I work on is that at the moment in our team at Edinburgh, uh, Matt is the only man in the in the group in the School of Engineering. So everyone else at the moment is a woman. Yeah, so I'm certainly in the minority, but I think it's it's. I find it interesting because I think maybe the field is changing and also, although, you know, what we do is slightly technical engineering, modeling, we look at, you know, processes, power plants. I wonder what, what things are related to environmental issues. There tends to be more women in the field of engineering. I studied energy and environmental engineering and our, our cohort was 50% female, whereas my, my peers who studied, you know, electrical or mechanical or because of material engineering is a lot more male, male dominated. Hopefully, the more visibility we have of engineers of all types, <laughs> the more that that people or school children might think of coming and studying engineering. Um, certainly for me, so I did electrical and mechanical, so that was across two different schools actually at the time, and there were many fewer women studying electrical engineering than there were in the mechanical engineering, and I don't really know why. What it is that that attracts them into it. But hopefully, if we make ourselves more visible, people might think, oh, actually, I am quite interested in how electrical engineering, electrical components might work. And, and it may be that it starts to even up a bit more. Now, you have both shared information about your background, research interests, and areas of expertise. Uh, what research are you currently involved with? 
And how would you say your work supports global net zero ambitions? So I'm involved in a number of projects. Um, I think the I mean, one of the biggest ones is a project actually called uh, Energy Rev. It's part of the government's Prospering from the Energy Revolution program to look at implementing smart local energy systems in a way that will maximize uh, emissions reduction. Uh, so Energy Rev is the sort of academic research arm of that. There's a number of uh, real projects going on that the government have funded. And our particular um, area is the um, evaluation or the multi-criteria assessment work package. So we're trying to develop a tool that will allow us to compare different smart local energy systems, which can be quite different in their design. Um, it's, it's actually quite a broad definition. Uh, so we're trying to develop a multi-criteria assessment tool to assess those and compare them, but not just in terms of their net zero performance and, and carbon performance, but also across a, a wide range of different um, performance metrics from the economic performance through governance social acceptability, et cetera, as well. So it's a really multidisciplinary thing. I'm also very involved in uh, the newest project. Um, so we're looking at um, putting carbon capture and storage on waste to energy plants. And I think my role in that is really assisting with calculating the potential um, for negative emissions. And the aspect there is obviously that um, there's biogenic waste that's being um, burnt. If you capture the carbon from that uh, and store it and lock it away, that's actually atmospheric carbon uh, not that would not normally actually be included in a, a life cycle assessment because it would be just part of the natural carbon cycle. So potentially makes your emissions negative and we want to try and assess how big that is across Europe alongside a, a series of other things with the newest project that are looking at the feasibility of this. I'm sure Matthew will talk about it a bit more. And I'm also involved in, um, there are a number of projects, but another one that's looking towards net zero is looking at how hybrid heating solutions can help transition heating towards zero carbon or towards very low carbon. So this is uh, solutions which involve both the combination of heat pumps and at the moment traditional gas boilers and how you could actually uh, manage them in time so you can switch between one and the other to both support the local electricity network. So there's a challenge here that our, our networks are constrained in how much how much energy they can transmit at any moment in time, but also to, to look at whether there's actually times of day when it's better to run the heat pump or better to run the gas boiler and allow. Um, so to actually, I mean, although as long as you've got a gas boiler, it's never going to be truly zero carbon. It, it's more about facilitating that transmission, that transition as quickly as possible to lower carbon and ultimately hopefully have these systems running 100% on zero carbon electricity on the heat pump side and, and decommission the gas boiler eventually. And you, Mathieu, what current research are you involved with? Yeah, so my, my research interests are uh, mostly focused on carbon capture and storage. I'm interested in how we can you know, lock away CO2 away from the atmosphere for long periods of time, consistent with the uh, climate change mitigation. So Basically, since the start of my career, I've worked on how we can make a power plant fit for purpose with carbon capture and storage, fit for purpose for the electricity system that uh, uh, we're going to have in the future. So been a lot of focus on, uh, I mentioned coal plants, gas gas plants as well, biomass, trying to reduce the cost of uh, these power stations when they have carbon capture and storage, and also making them uh, flexible so that they can 
complement the viability of renewable energy sources such as uh, wind or solar. And I, I spend a lot of my, my time doing that. Um, in the last three to four years, I've also started working on um, how we can make hydrogen with carbon capture and storage from natural gas. I think one of the key things with hydrogen is that it has to be basically zero carbon, and we can achieve that with carbon capture and storage. So I'm, I'm, I'm keen to demonstrate that. Uh, that we can do that technically, cost-effectively, and uh, um, effectively correct some of the misconceptions out there about uh, hydrogen made from, from natural gas with CCS. Can I just mention that uh, we work together on a, on a project looking at CCS in the waste management sector? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in how um, the, yeah, the, the, the carbon that's in our waste, in our household waste, in our industrial waste, a large fraction of that carbon, um, well, that carbon, we... In any case, in a net zero society, we should stop it from going into the atmosphere. Some of that carbon is biogenic carbon. So it's coming from things like wood, paper, food waste. And after recycling, some of that carbon, biogenic carbon, goes to waste incineration. And if we can uh, add CCS to this waste incinerator throughout the life cycle, we remove CO2 from the atmosphere. And I, I believe uh, that you know the waste management sector provides a huge service to society by avoiding landfilling managing our waste and avoiding the, the pollution that comes from landfilling. And I believe that with CCS, it can also play this role as being a, effectively create a, a carbon sink to effectively create these uh, very, very valuable uh, negative emissions that we need to effectively compensate uh, the fact that we are very, very likely to overshoot our carbon budget. You know, the, the primary work that we've done, Camilla, shows that this could account up to you know 15% of the, the entire inventory of negative emissions that we might need in the future. So it's, it's interesting because, you know, waste is, a, is an indigenous fuel, doesn't compete with uh, food production in the way that, for example, biofuels can do. So the sector is really sort of accelerated in, in its understanding of CCS, but uh, a lot more needs to be done, including, you know, R&D to, to develop CCS technologies. Uh, I've talked about carbon sink, and the, 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 the last thing that's getting me excited in the morning is uh, working on um, uh, how we can remove CO2 that's already in the atmosphere but directly, basically, by capturing CO2 directly from the air. So it's, a, it's another way of creating carbon sink and uh, compensating for overshooting the climate budget. It's kind of last resort technology. There are all, all things that we might do before that, but we might be in a position that yeah, we won't be able to not capture CO2 from, from the atmosphere. And um, also by focusing on the technology, reducing the cost, effectively, you know, we think that we can get direct air capture to something of the order of maybe $200 per ton of CO2. And there's a lot of uh, technologies or policies out there that have uh, an avoidance cost that's above $200 per ton of CO2. So if you, then you're effectively capping the, the, the cost of climate change mitigation with direct air capture. If you can reduce the cost of the, the last resort technology for climate change mitigation, you're, you're, you can actually cap the total cost of climate change mitigation. You might not do things such as aggressively chasing the last few percentage in certain sectors of the economy if it's more expensive than capturing CO2 from the air. So uh, that's really you know, what, what motivates me to work in direct air capture. Now you have both mentioned the newest project. Mathieu, I believe you are project coordinator and Camilla, you lead Work Package 5. Mathieu, could you give us an overview of the project? Tell us a bit more about the aims and how long it runs for. Yeah, the newest project stands for negative emission in the waste to energy sector, technologies for CCUS. It's a three and a half year project with uh, six research partners in four countries. So UK, Germany, Norway, and uh, the Netherlands. 
and uh, we also have uh, of about 30 members uh, from industry, regulators, strong body uh, trade association that contributes to the project and effectively as a as an expert advisory group. And um, effectively, the, the aim of the, the team that we assembled in this project is to de risk, demonstrate and uh, develop C2 capture technologies tailored for waste energy plants, for waste incinerators. Uh, and the, the challenges that we're trying to address are waste can be a challenging fuel. Um, it contains pollutants. So we want to make sure that C2 capture technologies are uh, fit for purpose. They can remove those pollutants and uh, they can continue to operate for a long period of time without being uh, affected by uh, uh, these pollutants. We want to, uh, Camille sort of, alluded to that already, we want to uh, developing a, a reliable methodology to account for the negative emissions in the sector. So how much CO2 can we remove from the atmosphere in, in that sector? And uh, finally, we want to create effectively a platform for CCS or CCUS in the, in the Western sector. When we started the project, there was a you know, lack of knowledge about the techno-economics, the, the economic potential for the sector with CCS, uh, and a poor understanding of the, the likely environmental impacts and benefits. So effectively, we want to create evidence that uh, can be useful for making policy to accelerate the deployment of CCS in that sector. If listeners want to find out more about the newest project, they can visit newestccus.eu and follow also on Twitter at newestccus, all one word. Mathieu, you are one of the instructors in the world's first CCS Massive Open Online course, or MOOC. It's called Climate Change, Carbon Capture and Storage, and it's available for free on the edX.org website. I believe you are pretty much the face of the MOOC. Can you tell us how and why you got involved with this? Yeah, that's right. So I, um, what I wanted to do is address some of the um, misconception about CCS, carbon capture and storage out there, and also raise the general awareness about why we need it and how it can con contribute to achieving a climate change mitigation. I basically, yeah, I developed 80% uh, of the content of the course, and the other 20% is from my colleague, um, uh, Dr. Mark Wilkinson in the School of Geosciences at the University of Edinburgh. Mark teaches about how we can store CO2 safely underground in deep geological formations. And the rest of the MOOC focuses on why we need CCS so much, uh, what sectors of the economy it can contribute to decarbonize. So we look at electricity, hydrogen, the cement industry, the steel industry, and we also uh, discuss uh, negative emissions, the best way that we can use CCS to remove CO2 from the atmosphere. And then we, um, we talk about CO2 capture technology, how they work, for example, direct air capture work, and then we finish with uh, uh, looking at uh, the way forward for CCS, where we are, at and where we need to be effectively uh, if we if we're going to be serious about climate change. Uh, the course has been running since 2018. Um, we've had four sessions so far. Uh, 18,000 people have uh, taken the course, and uh, uh, we've had people from the oil and gas industry, the civil service, journalists, uh, entrepreneurs. Um, across all ages and all genders. So there the gender balance is about 50%. You know, people from the you know, adolescents, uh, high school students, university students, and also uh, professionals that uh, aim to understand more about the field and also uh, even, even sort of retired people with an interest in climate change. And um, yeah, we, we're planning a, a new session of the course starting at the end of the month. It's going to coincide with COP26 and we're just hoping, hoping to get uh, 
more and more uh, people on the course so that they, they can learn about CCS. And the, um, the main driver is really to, you know, educate people. Um, you know, CCS is a necessity in, in, in climate change mitigation. It's not an option. It does work. It is affordable. And, uh, and it doesn't compete with uh, renewables. It doesn't divert investment from renewables. We need CCS in industries that uh, uh, renewables can decarbonize. Uh, for example, the, the cement industry, the, the glass industry, the steel sector, and we need CCS to remove the excess of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. We're very likely to overshoot our, our carbon budget, and so we we absolutely need to to be doing that. And uh, so it's really you know putting the word out there why it's so important, how it works, and uh, hopefully by raising awareness, we will be able to uh, implement this technology if, if we if we can if we if we can convince our the general public and, and our, our policymakers and our decision makers that uh, technology is critical and uh, it's, it's more likely to get deployed. So that's, I think, what was driving me in the first place. And uh, yeah, uh, we keep running the course. So um, uh, it, it's free, it's on demand, and it takes about maybe 15 hours of personal effort to complete. So uh, hopefully more, more people will join. Excellent. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of interest, especially around COP26, which you both mentioned. Uh, COP26 is the biggest event in global climate action. This year is taking place very close by in Glasgow. It's starting in just a few days. So I wanted to ask you both, why do you think COP26 is important? Um, and what do you hope will come out of it? Camilla, I'll start with you. I suppose, I mean, it is a part of a, a series of, of these COP meetings that do happen, I think, every year, if that's correct. But this is um, every few years, they're particularly big ones that um, are checking back over progress. And I, I, I understand that the one that's happening in Glasgow um, is one of these um, flagship COP meetings. I think it'll be really interesting to see what comes out of it. I think public awareness of climate change does seem to have taken a step change since the last big COP. Although people have known about it, I mean, I've known about it all my life. Um, I remember first learning about climate change in, in the 80s. I think the some of the, the actions of people like Greta Thunberg have actually brought it more into the public awareness. I think things like um, the wildfires, some of the strange weather we've been having, people have sort of begun or the general public seems to have begun to take it. It has begun to seem more real um, and more immediate. So the environment that we're in now sort of politically, socially is different, but then equally the events of the last year and a bit with the pandemic will have also affected how people prioritize environmental issues and, and climate change particularly. So I'm, I'm, I'm not really sure how I think it's going to turn out. Either it's going to be this great big hope hope filled event where where we actually start seeing um, countries from around the world committing to to real change and and committing to things whether it's more than just lip service or it will just be more of the same of yes we will achieve this but we haven't actually fixed how on earth what the politicians are going to do from a policy perspective to actually meet those targets um, in terms of investment and various other things and I'm, I'm kind of on the fence for, for where, which way I see it going, I suppose. COP26 is a, is a very important sort of, um, climate change conference run by the United Nations. Uh, uh, I think the, the, the important ones run on a five-year cycle. The, the last one was uh, COP21. That was when the, the Paris Agreement was signed in, in 2015, where 
the world agreed to effectively committing to net zero. Five years later or six years later because of the pandemic, uh, you know, everybody's coming back to the table and uh, everybody's looking at, uh, you know, what serious commitments are, are going to be made. I don't have any expectation in the sense that I don't really know what to expect. But what I would like to see uh, is effectively, uh, you know, more countries committing to net zero, setting legal targets at national level. So, you know, it's one thing to make pledges, but some countries are actually enforced in law their, their net zero um, commitments. So, you know, the UK, France, for example, and others. These uh, uh, legal targets need basically uh, to basically crunch the numbers on your carbon budget, and they need to lead to enforceable carbon budgets. So, for example, the, the UK has pairs of four years for their carbon budget, and so far the UK has been uh, has been able to stick to its, uh, its carbon budget, reducing its CO2 emissions. In Netherlands, we've seen uh, NGOs taking the government to court for uh, failing to meet its carbon budget. And uh, we are uh, some from France. In France, uh, France is not meeting its, its carbon budget. So by making these uh, legal targets, you're, it's important that, that the, we put ourselves in a position where we can challenge our government if they fail to, to action on, on, take action on climate change and meet, meet their own commitments. And effectively, uh, you know, I would like to see yeah, more countries commit, see the, uh, the pledges that have been made, take us from this uh, three-degree trajectory of climate change that we're on, you know, to effectively, ideally 1.5, but as close as possible to 1.5. Camilla sort of alluded to that, but it's important that uh, key players, you know, the important players show leadership. So the USA and China, and we've lacked leadership from uh, these countries in the past. And, you know, if, if the two largest CO2 emitters uh, are able to commit and lead the way, I think that, that the rest of the world will follow. And uh, hopefully we, we will be able to see that. But, um, you know, predicting the future is hard, right? Uh, so we'll see what happens. I think... Talking about CCS, you know, CCS is the, uh, the sometimes the forgotten child of climate change mitigation. And once once we have legal targets for our carbon budget and we crunch the numbers, I think a lot of countries will realize that it's, it has to become a, a very important tool in their climate uh, mitigation strategy. So, and the countries that have have, a, have a basically a national CCS strategy. So, I'm hoping by seeing more commitment to legal targets, uh, we'll be able to see uh, effectively more CO2 emission reduction, but and that that will. Uh, um, lead to more CCS because, as I said earlier, CCS is, is an absolute necessity in, in climate change mitigation. It's not an option. And it allows you to, if you like, put the net in net zero by allowing you to remove CO2 from the atmosphere. There's another thing I'd like to add, actually, that, that Mathieu made me think of, which is um, one of the things I've become increasingly interested in is, is how we get the desire for reducing um, carbon emissions and climate change and some of the money that's available for that in the developed world, how we get that into um, helping to support sustainable development in those countries that aren't so wealthy and, and, and need to be given the opportunity to develop, but ideally in the most sustainable way possible without further adding to the climate problem. And one of the things I'm, I'm becoming interested increasingly interested in from an evaluation perspective is whether or not it's worth actually setting these targets about being consumption-based rather than production-based. So at the moment, and, and historically with Kyoto and then Paris, the, the targets are all based on domestic production. And so one of the ways, we'll take steel, for example, one of the ways that you can reduce the carbon emissions from um, steel in the UK is to just not produce the steel in the UK and to buy it from India and then the carbon emissions associated with producing that steel are put onto uh, India's carbon budget. But if we're still using the steel in the UK, it's still being um, manufactured in order to be consumed within the UK, should we not be actually accounting for that within our own carbon budget? And would that not then 
start to to hopefully I mean, there's a whole lot of detailed economic analysis that needs to go into that, but actually start to to put that flow of of funding and money for decarbonizing towards so that India could help to have funding, for example, to develop more green steel plants. Um, I know that they're looking at carbon capture and storage on steel manufacturing and, and that that money might actually then start flowing around the world to um, encourage that everywhere rather than just in the countries that are wealthier. So um, that's one of the other things I'm really interested in. I don't think it's going to happen uh, in this COP, but it's definitely something that needs to be studying. Uh, we need to be looking more towards now is, is this sort of consumption-based accounting rather than just production-based. Well, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you both on the podcast. If listeners want to keep up to date with our guests, they are both very active on Twitter and you can follow Matthew at Matt Lucio, that's Matt with one T and Camilla at Camilla Energy, Camilla with a double L. So I want to leave you with one final question. Are you both optimistic about the next few years or decades? Do you think we will be able to cope with the climate emergency? I think the main thing to understand, you know, climate change is a spectrum of outcome, you know, it's not black and white. There's uh, many, many possible outcomes. And, you know, previous efforts have been not good enough. I think there's more and more awareness, there's more political pressure, Inaction on climate change is, is inclusive being, you know, called out for when it happens, you know, and solving the climate problem, it's about money at the end of the year. And, and it's not that expensive. You know, we, we, we're talking about, you know, investing maybe 1% of global GDP every year, 1.5% of global GDP every year for the next 50 years. The alternative, the, the, um, the, the cost of climate change itself, you know, with that, is, is much higher than the 1.5% GDP. So, you know, it's a long-term problem in some countries, like the UK. We, we run on short political cycle, but I think we've developed industries before. We've developed sectors, uh, for example, the waste management sectors or, you know, the sewage sector um, that have contributed to, you know, improving our health. And as a society, you know, we, we, we accept, we no longer accept that we, we can pollute our rivers or, you know, there's a lot more pressure on air pollution, and eventually, I'm 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 hopeful that uh, it will be the same with carbon. You know, it will be no longer acceptable to, to put carbon in that in the atmosphere. We will increasingly see the atmosphere, the way we we value our sea and our rivers, and um, we'll no longer consider as a you know as a as a as the bin for our carbon emissions, and we will uh, uh, move away from that. And I think change takes time, but we you know there's a, we'll have a responsibility, and I think at the end of the day, it's also important that. Uh, you know, we, we develop industries that are climate friendly, but that also um, uh, allow us to do a, a just transition to, to climate change. And CCS is one of them is, you know, high, high skilled jobs, blue collar job, industrial jobs that uh, bring a lot to the economy that, uh, you know, we, we, we can we can develop in our, in, our, in our countries as we tackle climate change, maintain our, you know, a, a decent uh, way of life. Camilla, how about you? I vacillate a lot. Uh, moving moving from optimism to pessimism. I think I read uh, a quote from somebody once that was along the lines of the problem with climate change is that we've been treating it as a technical problem with a technical solution. And it's actually a socio-political problem. And as an engineer, that's incredibly frustrating because I don't know how to change. Uh, so I don't know how to tackle socio-political problems. I know how to tackle technical problems. Uh, on the optimistic side, I think we have a lot of the technical solutions are either there or nearly there. I think even in the areas of, of like 
domestic heating, which is sort of one of the next big problems. There are a number of solutions that that we've got ideas for that are sort of in the pre-commercial stage as well as some that are commercial. So we've got we've got solutions to it. The next challenge is this um, socio-political one um, of getting buy-in from everyone to change the change the way that they live without reducing quality of life. I think that's the the key thing. Um, it's not necessarily about um, quality of life. It's just about living a bit more sensitively and accepting that we can't keep doing what we have been doing uh, without there being really quite terrible consequences. Camilla, Mathieu, thank you for joining the podcast. Thank you. Thank you.